Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Center for Growth and Opportunity at USU, with the John M. Huntsman School of Business presenting the Eccles Memorial Lecture in Economics, featuring Dr. John B. Taylor, March 26th at 2.30 in the Perry Pavilion at Huntsman Hall. Details at growthopportunity.org. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Dr. Brenda Ekwersel is Director of Climate Science for the Climate and Energy Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. And she'll be in Utah later this week for events in Salt Lake City and Ogden. She says we can adapt to and reduce risks from changing weather patterns and other consequences of releasing heat-trapping emissions to the atmosphere. And that we can switch to a lower emissions trajectory. And she'll give us specific examples for Utah on the program today. Dr. Corso will offer a free presentation for high school, junior high students and teachers, as well as for the general public, titled Climate Change, the Reality, the Solutions, at the Nancy Tessman Auditorium at the Downtown Salt Lake City Library. That's on Thursday, March 21st. That's Thursday from uh, 3.15 to 5 p.m. It begins at 3.15. She'll also be speaking at the Intermountain Sustainability Summit, Weber State University in Ogden. And uh, she'll be part of a plenary um, discussion on Thursday, March 21st, 8.30 in the morning. And then back to Weber State Friday, March 22nd, 8.30 in the morning for a workshop titled Science, Stories, and Sustainability, the National Climate Assessment and Opportunities in Utah. Brenda Corsell, uh, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much. It's really good to be here. So a lot to talk about, and you are a co-author, I believe, of uh, Chapter 29 in the uh, fourth National Climate Assessment, and talking about uh, mitigation, and so we'll, we'll concentrate on that. Uh, of course, we'll talk about other uh, related topics as well. I want to start and uh, not spend a lot of time, just, you know, maybe five minutes on this. Uh, I noticed... Uh, you know, Googling you, you you pop up a lot of places talking about climate science, uh, obviously. And this one caught my attention. Um, you are um, on with, I think, Jake Tapper, rebutting President Trump. Uh, not on directly with the president. But uh, I, I wanted to treat this just for five minutes because the president, in these remarks, I think is speaking for, you know, X number of the population. Um and so one of his comments was uh, climate scientists used to call it global warming. Now they've, according to him, switched off of that to call it climate change. And uh, you had a response there. I wonder what you would say to that. Sure. Um, first off, I just want to say that, for example, that comment was said during a, a really massive winter you know, snow event and things like that. And it's really easy to confuse the weather versus the climate um, and how weather is changing under climate change. So it's a common um, situation. And before I spent years studying this topic, I too was would, would say very similar comments. So I have incredible empathy for anyone who just didn't have the opportunity to look at all the data like I and so many others have. So, so let's start off with it's an understandable um, situation. And what I can say is that the weather and the term global warming 
was I had the opportunity to actually study with Wally Broker, who popularized that term. He taught me climate science uh, when going to school, and he just passed away a couple weeks ago, unfortunately. And the reason he used that term, global warming, is because it's one of the more obvious consequences of burning coal, oil, gas, and cement manufacturing, where we release carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, and it accumulates in the atmosphere, and some of it goes into trees, and some of it goes in the ocean. However, that excess carbon overload traps heat, and surface warming, which we average up each year, um, we can measure that, and we have really good measurements since the 1880s, and it's really clear, especially since the middle of the last century, I'm talking 1950s, um, it has been really increasing. And so Wally Broker helped uh, get that term into the public mind about global warming. And all along when we were studying this, we were studying climate change, and global warming is one of the obvious consequences of climate change. No, no, I don't mean to pick on the president, but this provides a, uh, you know, kind of an encapsulated uh, version, very pithy. The president, if nothing else, is very pithy. He's skilled at uh, encapsulating ideas in a, in a very colorful way. Uh, he yeah. said in this, inter- in this interview, uh, he said, you know, maybe one reason scientists have gone off using this term global warming, and you've said you know, interchangeable global warming and climate change, uh, the fact that it's getting warmer, he says, quote, it's getting too cold all over the place. It, uh, you know. mm-hmm. And it's really important to remember that, in fact, this is a part of evolving climate science, so it's not settled yet, so it's not quite in the textbook. So it's understandable that, in fact, what we're starting to see is that because the Arctic polar region is, is the area of the most rapid change, it's warming at least twice as fast as the global average, which is that global warming number global mean annual surface temperature. And when you have that happening up in the north, and and, and as we all know in Utah, whenever we see that there's snow on the mountains and there's a spot that has a dark patch, we see that when the sun rises, that dark patch, the edges of the snow against that dark patch, those uh, warm much faster than further up in the snowpack because the snow is reflecting nearly all that incoming sunlight back out to space, whereas that dark patch of ground is absorbing most of that sunlight and can warm up and can start melting the edge of the snow that it's uh, near that exposed area. That's what's happening in the Arctic because we're losing our uh, sea ice and we're kind of losing our air conditioner to the north, which ironically is changing our uh, winter jet stream in the high altitude that keeps the cold air up north normally in the pre-industrial period. However, now it's slowing down, getting weak, and some of those cold Arctic air is coming down and bringing snow and frigid, uh, very, very dangerous temperatures to the United States. Counterintuitive. <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah, indeed. Uh, third thing, this is the last thing I'll, I'll do on this uh, from this. Well, I think it's the last thing in that uh, brief interview with the president. Um, he said um, that according to the scientists, at least that's an understanding of, of the science, that the ice caps were supposed to be melted by now. <laughs> uh well, that's another thing, that in Antarctica, it is a huge chunk of ice down there, and it took a long time for it to build up. And so it takes a long time to melt it back down. 
so it takes a while. Uh, we do see that. So the the three big ice sheets are over one. There's the West Antarctic ice sheet, the East Antarctic ice sheet, and Antarctica. There's the Greenland ice sheet. And the other areas where we have landlocked ice that is prominent are the mountain glaciers. And because those are smaller, those are going to disappear sooner if we continue on the current emissions pathway. And scientists debate whether it would take centuries to maybe a thousand years or a couple thousand years to uh, melt all the ice, ice caps. Okay, I'll, I'll move off of that. I, I think, uh, you know, the vast majority of our audience uh, talking today, if, uh, you know, if, if you believe in uh, human-caused climate change, we're preaching to the choir here. So I want to, to move uh, move toward uh, some interesting uh, findings here in Chapter 29. But before we get there, um, what jumped out to you most from the, the overall, the Fourth National Climate Assessment? What's the biggest message there? Sure. The... Every Congress mandates this assessment and asks for, every four years, sort of um, a report card, (laughs) if you will, for the United States in the context of climate change. And so this is the fourth national climate assessment. The major advance since the third national climate assessment are in two areas, I would say, as far as scientific findings. They have much more evidence for extreme event attribution, such as an extreme polar outbreak, um, and you have intense snow coming in the wintertime, for example. Uh, Another example is the changing nature of hurricanes. Another example is heat waves. Another example is flooding along our rivers from extreme precipitation or on the coastline. So those types of individual events, we can tell, for example, that Hurricane Harvey that dropped biblical scale, you know, once every 2,000 years, it's a very rare event, level of rain that fell on Houston, extremely rare. Um, It dropped that rain and flooded the homes almost up to their, you know, roof line in in some cases, very, very severe flooding, that 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 Hurricane Harvey of that intensity was three times more likely in the decade that occurred than um, in the pre-industrial period. And the amount of rain associated with it was 15% more intense than would have naturally occurred. That could have been possible. Yeah, incredible, incredible. Um, uh, You're right. I didn't say what the second major advance was. Yes, go ahead. Integrated assessment models where we look at the cost of climate change in many different sectors in the United States, like the cost to the United States, such as uh, the fishermen, the, um, the railway, the roads repairs, the damages to different economic sectors, as well as, um, so that's, that's a major advance, and that's a lot of what we focused on, the reducing risk through emissions mitigation chapter. Or just uh, just taking a, a little aside here, um, thinking about the flooding right now in the Midwest, um, we have these big you know weather events, and I guess the temptation is to attribute everything to global warming to, to climate change. I guess that that's a temptation. You pr- I don't know how how much you can attribute every single thing to to the overall trend. There are, for example, um, we we have. There's a continuum of understanding with the micro-events such as hail, 
um, and tornadoes, the evidence is still growing, and we're still trying to understand those processes. They're hard to compare. Like, for example, tornadoes are increasing, but um, uh, we know that compared to the historical period, but that might be because we weren't as good at measuring them in the past, you know, so we have to hold off on our judgment on that and do digging into paleo evidence or historical records or newspapers and so forth of damage. So those are harder, and so we don't um, have as strong evidence on those fronts. However, that bomb cyclone in the middle of the country, affecting the Midwest and and from from really the Rockies all the way through to the Missouri Valley, um, showed something that was very disturbing. It's really unusual to have a landlocked what they call bomb cyclone, which means in less than 24 hours, the pressure drops dramatically. Um, And we've seen what we call rapid intensification within 24 hours happening in the coastal uh, area with these hurricanes. Uh, Over the past three years, the most damaging hurricanes all had that characteristic of really rapid intensification within 24 hours, which makes it harder for evacuation uh, signals, because something that might be a little tropical storm suddenly turning into a massive hurricane is problematic for first responders and how they decide to get people out of harm's way and the warnings that are issued to the public. So that's a characteristic of that storm. We have to study it. I wouldn't say the links are understood at this point. But I would say that that characteristic put a lot of us on notice. We said, this is very disturbing. We're seeing this in a landlocked situation. The other aspect was the intense amount of precipitation associated with any storm is more likely to be even more intense than in in the past. All the historical records show that the heaviest rain event of a year, or if it is a cold part of the Earth's surface, like a mountain or a cold time of year, it it can fall in the form of snow. And those numbers are increasing. So the amount of rain or snow falling in a a storm that could naturally be occurring is now much greater than before across all parts of the United States. I want to turn to uh, Chapter 29 in the uh, National Climate Assessment, the the fourth um, National Climate Assessment. And uh, Brenda Eckwersel um, is with us. She's co-author of that particular chapter. She's uh, Director of Climate Science for the Climate and Energy Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. And uh, just mention here before we go on that she'll be in Utah uh, for events on Thursday and Friday. Um, so there's a free presentation for high school and junior high students and teachers, as well as for the general public, titled Climate Change, the Reality, the Solutions, at the Nancy Tessman Auditorium in downtown Salt Lake City Library. That's on Thursday, beginning at 3.15. And she'll be speaking a couple times at the Intermountain Sustainability Summit at Weber State University on Thursday morning, 8.30. She's part of a plenary session. Uh, And then Friday morning at 8.30, a workshop uh, titled Science, Stories, and Sustainability, the National Climate Assessment and Opportunities in Utah. We'll be talking about that as we go along. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, um, I want to jump into this uh, kind of shocking and uh, hopeful. There's a table here uh, that pops up at the beginning of uh, Chapter 29 of the Climate Assessment, projected damages and potential risk for a reduction by sector and it goes through sector by sector in our economy and uh, in the nation. Uh, annual economic damages estimated in the year 2090. One scenario, uh, bad. The other scenario, mitigated. Uh, we'll talk about that when we come back. 
Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Humanities, improving communities through ideas and action. Online at utahhumanities.org. Myths and legends universal to all cultures are stories about events. Often myths include something supernatural and they are passed down orally from generation to generation. It is very common for a group of people to share a belief about their creation. One creation story from the Bantu tribe of Central Africa begins, In the beginning there was only darkness, water, and the great god Bamba. One day Bamba, in pain from a stomachache, vomited up the sun. The sun dried up some of the water, leaving land. Still in pain, Bamba vomited up the moon, the stars, and then some animals, the leopard, the crocodile, the turtle, and finally, some men. Stories such as this provide a shared sense of community and connection to the past. This segment of Anthropology, What's It to You, has been made possible by our members and the USU Museum of Anthropology collection, including pre-Columbian Peruvian ceramics, Indonesian textiles, and Great Basin. Details at anthromuseum.usu.edu. Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. We're talking with Dr. Brenda Eckworsel, Director of Climate Science for the Climate and Energy Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. She'll be in Utah on Thursday and Friday for events in Salt Lake City and uh, Ogden. Uh, and uh, she's our guest for the hour. You can reach this program at uh, upraccess at gmail.com. Would love to have your question or comment for Dr. Corsell. Upraccess at gmail.com. Or you can call us to uh, 1-800-826-1495. 800-826-1495. Uh, so, Dr. Corsell, um pulled up this uh, table here, and people can play along at home. Uh, pull up the... Uh, it's available online here, the 4th National Climate Assessment, and I'm looking at uh, Chapter 29, on uh, titled Reducing Risk Through Emissions Mitigation. So projected damages and potential for risk reduction by sector, and uh, a couple of uh, columns, annual damages um, under RCP 8.5 and damages avoided under RCP 4.5. What, what's, uh, what's RCP? Sure. Um, those are called, oh, my goodness, the science jargon we have with climate change is <laughs> immense. Uh, essentially, relative concentration pathways, 8.5 versus a lower number, 4.5. What those are are the current, if we were to do current rate of emissions increase that we have right now that we've had over the recent past, that projects out to be the high emissions pathway known as RCP 8.5. So we could call it almost what our current pathway is. Well, and and then, by the way, where yeah. are we now? The, the goal from the Paris uh, uh, you know, climate conference is, was, uh, what, uh, 2 degrees uh, centigrade Celsius. above? Uh, Celsius. Mm-hmm. Celsius, sorry. Celsius, Celsius above Celsius. Uh, pre-industrial levels? Yes, above pre-industrial levels, and with an ambitious goal to stay below one and a half degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, in part because of small island nations that would be submerged uh, if we went above 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. So the low emissions pathway, uh, this RCP 4.5, has at the lower end of its confidence range just barely above the Paris Agreement, but the high end of the uncertainty range for the low emissions pathway, which sounds like gobbledygook in my, in my uh, um, coming out of my mouth right now, but essentially um, 
this lower emission scenario that we're talking about is higher than the Paris Climate Agreement overall. Okay, okay. all right. So but- it's, it's what uh, the, the nations have contributed, what they are going to reduce, and if you project those out, that's within the range of what this RCP 4.5 is. Mm-hmm. So it's what the nations are trying to reduce to and trying to put their commitments, their chips on the table, so to speak, uh, for what we're going to try to do to contribute to reducing emissions, our own emissions. Um, so um, that, that's what we're trying to do. It's aspirational, not quite to the, the Paris Accord. But So what is the RCP um, 8.5 then? That's just no... That's current, no, no breaks current on, rate of increase. Current rate of increase. As if okay. we didn't do anything. We just kept okay. doing what we're doing as a world, and we kept on this pathway of the rate of increase we've had in the past. If you continue that rate of increase, which includes a growth of activities, growth of uh, human activities, it, 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 this is RCP 8.5. Yeah, and uh, some of these uh, some of these effects by sector are were surprising to me. Um, I, I guess I'll I'll start with people dying. Um, it's number two on the table: extreme temperature mortality. And under the uh, RCP 8.5, just you know, just continuing the way we're going, uh, uh, this in dollar figures, 141 billion dollars uh, annual damages uh, in in 2090. Yes, and you, if we did the lower emissions pathway, we could take nearly a 60 percent reduction in that risk. And if we were to protect and educate people about the risk of extreme heat and the types of exposure and what to do about that and have good public health systems, we could reduce those risks even further. So these numbers assume, you know, not, not any substantial increase in adaptation. Although you'll see there's a little diamond there next to extreme heat mortality mm-hmm. and the coastal property and some roads, and it's showing that if we did do uh, adaptation, we can really reduce it. But in order to get these numbers um, and compare apples to apples, some studies didn't include adaptation, but we're signaling adaptation can reduce extreme heat mortality, which is, forget the numbers on extreme heat mortality. We're talking people's lives. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So this is, I guess, what it says, extreme temperatures, and then, then some people's increasing numbers of people will be affected by that. Yes. Uh, we already have, unfortunately, um, we do um, have loss of life due to heat waves today. Surprisingly, it's one of those uh, hidden, you know, it's, it's underappreciated and not as well reported in the news. Uh, and, and, for example, there are cases of football players who are working out uh, in the summer, high school football players trying to um, get ready for the season and coming off of perhaps a summer of not intense workout and in, in extreme uh, heat index conditions. And then a couple days later, you know, um, there has been tragic loss of life. And so adaptation measures in that space and new guidelines for high school practices have really helped um, reduce uh, those earlier tragedies of and, and you have to be careful uh, uh, worrying about heat index, and especially when you're doing out, outdoor athletics or other things like that, or, or construction work, or working out in a rural agricultural setting. It's uh, quite dangerous. Uh, before we go on, uh, I wanted to uh, treat uh, several more of these and then, uh, then talk about, obviously we'll get to uh, you know, mitigations, and uh, I want to get to some, some specifics for Utah as well. Uh, Don in Logan uh, has called us. Uh, Don, uh, glad you've joined us. Thank you for taking the call, Tom. 
before we tear something down, we've got to have something better to replace it. And our standard of living and industrial lifestyle has come about because of all of the things that might give off some side effects. You're not convincing me that mankind has influenced the climate at all. I think it goes through natural cycles, and it's ridiculous to blame football players on the field dying from climate change. It's just it's, their common sense is out in the sun too much. That's their, Maybe they don't need to be in the gene pool. I think you all need to read Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand, because if you don't, your ignorance is going to be even more prevalent and more obvious. And, Tom, please quit criticizing President Trump. We we elected him in. He's our president. If you don't like it, you're just going to have to wait to get one of your own in. I'm sick of hearing him being the scapegoat for everything. And thank you for taking my call. Thanks, Don. Thanks, Don. Appreciate that. Uh, Doctor, we have several calls coming in. Um, Dr. Gwerzel, what, uh, what would you say to, to, to Don? You, you haven't convinced him. Sure. Um, and I did read Ayn Rand, I admit, many years ago. Uh, and one thing we know is that we probably wouldn't have very many trees on this planet if, if uh, coal wasn't discovered and it was a more efficient way of, of heating things. Um, we probably... Um, you know, so so we probably wouldn't have very many whales if we hadn't discovered oil because we were using whale blubber for light, lighting our lamps. And so those innovations at the time, uh, we looked at those, we said, wow, we could do better. We can use oil and gas and really improve our lives. And we had the Industrial Revolution. And now we're at the point where we're looking at the data and we say, okay, there's some consequences of that. We can do better. Um, and when we look at, for example, people have pointed to um, horse-drawn carriages in New York City, and you show a, an, an overlay image of looking at it, and um, within a decade later, you see all these horse-drawn carriages in Manhattan, this high-packed density, and then the next uh, 10 years later, you look at the images, and it's all cars. The transformation to cars was fast. And I, I think there's a lesson of hope in the history there. We have found better ways. We evolved um, better ways of doing things than the horse, and we embraced it. And there's some new technology out there that can help do it as well and um, help clean up the air quality of Salt Lake City area because a lot of the emissions coming out of the tailpipes you know, you know, a lot of it's natural. There's stuff being blown in from away. We can't do much about that in the Utah Salt Lake City area, but there are other things like what's coming out of our tailpipes that we can uh, find better ways. So Don says that uh, it's natural. Um, Climate, you know, changes, hotter, colder. Uh, He's not convinced humans are having a a big effect on this. Sure, Um, yeah. I I don't know how... we, yeah, we actually, we've studied um, lots of records of past climate change that are archived in lake and, and the up and down of temperature, and we know that there's a lot of variability out there. And we found out that, in fact, um, how sensitive these systems are to increase in heat-trapping gases. It's because of the study of past changes in climate that was completely natural. Uh, that we we understand all the different drivers, and we can run uh, calculations going forward without any. We know also how much uh, fossil fuel emissions uh, we're contributing, and we can run the Earth uh, models from the 1880s to the present, 
and we can figure out what the global mean surface temperature of the Earth is. In fact, I've run a simple climate model of this and, and done that studies myself. And when you, you cannot have the, you have, we have volcanic emissions, we have the sunspot activity, we have all those natural drivers in there, and we cannot reconstruct the temperature record uh, or the atmospheric carbon dioxide concentration without adding the fossil fuel emissions. And the difference, that's how we know how to attribute that, in fact, it is causing a, a change, and, and it's substantial. Now, for those who uh, are definitely convinced, that includes what, you know, 99% of the scientists? Uh, right, 97% of scientists uh, agree uh, that human-induced climate change is real. And um, I was testifying before Congress, and all the majority and minority, both sides of the aisle witnesses that were asked, all stood up and said, we know that human-induced climate change is real, it's here, and it's largely due to us. Uh, so for for that cohort and and, and the and the many, uh, you know, the nation who who do believe that uh, in human change, climate change, uh, human cause climate change, uh, I don't know how many solutions are going to have to be policy, and therefore going to have to convince people like Don. There's things we can do as individuals, and there are also things you can do at the state level. I mean, one of the good news is I, I think the first figure, well, 29.1 of the chapter, shows that every single state of the United States has already implemented some sort of policies to help reduce uh, heat-trapping emissions just because people understand uh, in the states how the consequences of heat-trapping emissions into the atmosphere are harming the air quality, harming public health, as well as uh, harming uh, some of the consequences of climate change that bring harm to citizens who are reacting to uh, extreme events that are made more severe because of climate change. So they're doing changes in transportation policy, forests and land use, caps on uh, carbon, and, and most are doing really good energy efficiency policies. So, and 455 st cities have stepped up and are taking action. And, and this list is only growing. This figure is at the point that we published it. That's uh, the number, but those numbers are increasing. So people are on the move, people are improving things, and that gives me a lot of hope. I want to return to this table. Um, anything? Uh, you know, maybe take another couple, two or three uh, lines from the from this table. Annual economic damages, twenty ninety, um, under RCP eight point five, and then RCP four point five. Any other areas that really stand out to you? Sure. The top three sectors you already mentioned one was extreme heat temperature mortality, the labor sector, and coastal property damage. And what's really important is that. The labor sector um, is, these are lost labor hours due to, in general, extreme events, uh, temperature, mostly temperature. Um, and so there are certain conditions. You're going to have to change uh, the hours that you're working or people are already um, harvesting crops um, in, in the evening hours because sometimes it's so hot during the late, late summer uh, conditions. So these are the top three. Um, and the good news is that we don't have to have over hundreds of billions of dollars of damages every single year on average, um, and the, the ranges are immense, and you have billions of dollars of damages in railway sector, water quality, coral reefs, uh, 
you know, disease-borne vectors, freshwater fish, winter recreation. Um, and, and we know that winter recreation is something that is going to be an all-season type of industry for these sites. And, but the winter, learning how to deal with uh, the snows when they come, they're going to be more intense. They're going to be um, also a shorter snow season. So how do you, how do you mitigate and adapt uh, winter recreation to take advantage of the, the precious snow season? Um, so you uh, you say in this uh, chapter, chapter twenty nine is what we're referring to of the uh, fourth uh, national climate assessment. Um, the the next few decades will likely impact the rest of the century. Um, talking about mitigations, whether they happen or not. Yes, what we all the all the the projections show that by the middle of the century, if we are a little bit above the Paris Agreement or on the Paris Agreement path can make a big difference in the damages to the U.S. economy. So what we see is, in general, the larger the global warming, the global average temperature change, the greater percentage of U.S. gross domestic product is a direct damage to the U.S. economy. They're interlinked. And if we did the Paris Agreement or a little bit above the Paris Agreement, RCP 4.5, it would be close to the uh, today's world. It would just be maybe one percent, maybe at most two percent of um, damages to the U.S. gross domestic product. However, if we did the high emissions pathway, which we're currently on, and that rate of increase, it could really start taking taking sizable chunks out of the U.S. domestic product. So we want to avoid that. That's the bottom line. Uh, what are what are the top things that uh, can be with the top mitigations that will have the biggest effect then? So the biggest effect are um, transportation. A large chunk of the U.S. emissions come from the transportation sector, and then uh, electricity use. So right now the U.S. economy is undergoing a transformation to natural gas, which has really uh, away from coal, which is really dropping the uh, heat-trapping emissions to the atmosphere because natural gas is more efficient. And then we're going to have to uh, go even deeper in decarbonizing the energy sector and increasing electrification of end use uh, and increasing storage. So, for example, uh, there's um, a Republican mayor in Texas who was looking at his town of 65,000, and he, he was telling me that he, he's a CPA, you know, his, that's his profession for life uh, over his career. And he looked at the numbers and he realized, oh, my goodness, uh, if I switch my community and my, public ut- my utility over to uh, he has uh, renewables, then I would save money, the upfront investments. And he is saving money for his town. And they're, um, he said he's really happy, and especially from the accounting standpoint, it's a a town of 65,000 in Texas. And I also spoke with someone who's running a small utility in the island off of Maine, who they're, they're using storage in two ways. They use the excess supply of solar radiation during the daytime that is too much for the local um, number of homes on this island in Maine to use, and they take that to heat water. And the water is then used like a heat pump. It, 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 it warms the homes during the uh, winter time, And so they have climate modulation in their homes 
through the storage, through thermal energy in, in the water, and they also have battery storage. And so they only use about 10% diesel power in the wintertime. And that's a big dramatic loss because they don't have to now replace that pipeline uh, to, that was degrading and old and was going to cost a lot of money for them to continue to have uh, this tie to the mainland for electricity. Now they're, they're completely independent practically because they have their own power they're generating locally and don't need to worry about that cable, and they just have to ship in a little bit of diesel in the winter. Let's take another break. When we come back, I want to hear some more examples and bring this back specifically to, to Utah. Also, Dr. Gorsal, I was watching a video that you, uh, or a brief video, you were talking about five things that everyone can do uh, to reduce uh, emissions, uh, including uh, energy-efficient light bulbs, things you might think, you know, pretty small but uh, might have an effect. Uh, I want to talk about that as well. Um, just mentioned before we go to break that uh, we're talking with Dr. Brenda Corsell. She's Director of Climate Science for the Climate and Energy Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. And uh, she will be uh, at a couple of events that you can go to here in Utah. Uh, first of those, a free presentation for high school, junior high sc- uh, students and teachers, as well as for the general public, titled Climate Change, the Reality of the Solutions. That's at the Nancy Tessman Auditorium in the downtown Salt Lake City Library on Thursday, beginning at 3.15. I said that was first, but actually the first uh, uh, opportunity you'll have to interact with uh, Dr. Edwersel is at the Intermountain Sustainability Summit. That's Thursday morning at 8.30, a plenary session at Weber State University. And then Friday... Uh, 8.30 in the morning at Weber State in uh, Ogden, a workshop titled Science, Stories, and Sustainability, the National Climate Assessment and Opportunities in Utah. More following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Salt Lake City Weekly, a Utah news source since 1984, covering news, politics, music, and more in Salt Lake City and beyond. Available weekly at 1,800 locations across the Wasatch Front or online at cityweekly.net. Thank you so much for listening to Utah Public Radio. We really do appreciate it. We appreciate your support. Hope you agree that there is much value here. You get to Utah weather and avalanche reports, Utah news, community conversations, important conversations uh, like those that happen on Access Utah. Uh, you get UPR original series, a statewide reach, factual and balanced reporting, and civil discussions, and so much more. And uh, like I said, we hope you agree that this is worth supporting and you'll have an opportunity. The uh, Spring Pledge Drive is coming up on March 21st. But you don't have to wait till then. You can pledge right now. In fact, early bird giving helps us reach our goal early. That means getting back to regular programming sooner. All early bird donors will receive a UPR vinyl decal in addition to the regular thank you gifts. So we hope you'll go right now to upr.org, upr.org, and pledge your support. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We reached our last segment now with Dr. Brenda Worsell uh, with the Union of Concerned Scientists. Uh, she's giving uh, some presentations in Utah uh, later this week, speaking uh, at the Testament Auditorium in downtown Salt Lake City Library Thursday, 315 and then a couple of times at the Intermountain Sustainability Summit at Weber State University in Ogden, uh, Thursday morning, 8.30, and Friday morning at 8.30. And uh, Dr. Quersel, among many other uh, uh, things, is a co-author of uh, Chapter 29 in the fourth uh, National Climate Assessment, 
which talks about reducing risks through emissions mitigation. And that's our topic on the program today. So, Dr. Quersel, um, maybe we could bring this to Utah. What what are some specific examples that Utah could maybe is doing or could do? Sure. Um, what's interesting is I'm looking at a map of Utah, and there's projected electricity generation capacity at risk under continued climate change. And one thing is to adapt and get a little bit ready for um, this is the idea that if you have the higher emissions pathway, the heat-induced reduction in energy efficiency and reduced water flows would reduce your summer energy generation capacity across the southwest region. And in Utah, it looks like you are a lot of places, you have maybe about a 10% reduction, and in rare cases, only one or two of 10 to 20%. So you're in pretty good shape. Um, In some other places, you'll have an increase in production because some places you'll have increased water flows as as things because uh, you have your your wonderful mountain resources um, and so that's something to think about how um, the water generation um, reduce water flows as well as energy efficiency due to uh, temperatures can affect energy supply for Utah and figure out how to prepare for that and make adaptation changes um, and so uh, another thing that, as far as emissions reductions, um, the switch from coal to natural gas is a bridge to that. It, it really is a helpful bridge. And then eventually we would be, uh, you have hydropower, but also um, looking at other sources of energy that aren't um, reduce, re- releasing carbon to the atmosphere. And some of the biggest changes personally you can do is to when you're in the market, for a new car, when you're at that decision point, to really look at those um, fuel economy standards and try to get further down the road on a, on a gallon of fuel, because it makes a big difference. If most of us increase all of our vehicles, maybe 10, 20 percent, getting further down the road on the same gallon of fuel, that really adds up, because that's one of the daily activities that many of us partake in, and, and, and that's, that, that really adds up. And so if we could use half the oil consumption and eventually get to other sources of renewable fuels or um, have storage or have electric, just different sources that are supplied by renewable energy eventually, hopefully by mid-century, then we could have a chance of meeting the Paris Climate Agreement. And we are, uh, I think we are talking about the states, right, and communities, because uh, the United States is now officially out of the Paris Climate Accord. Right. Right now the states uh, and are doing a lot of those activities um, because, you know, everyone recognizes the changing winter sports, for example, in Utah and, and how much of the winter, if rain is falling on snow earlier, uh, how does that change um, winter sport recreation? How does that change forest fire risk? How does that change a lot of important um, resources that Utah is is blessed with, frankly? What would um, what would be some needed policy um, implementations be? Sure. Well. Um, at the state level, there can be looks at what are incentives for, um, for example, 
there are um, incentives for putting solar panels in distributed generation throughout communities, and that's helpful because it's a way to capture the energy that is naturally coming on Utah every day, as well as any wind energy uh, that makes sense. The thing about solar is that you can locally be generating energy for your own home, as well as be sending out uh, energy to the community. Uh, and, and, and the big, the big uh, investment in research and development uh, at the probably federal level that could help is investment in Department of Energy and other places in energy storage. If we have an excess of supply, if we can generate in Utah so much extra, extra energy when the wind blows and when the sun is up, if we can't store it for when we use it later when the wind isn't blowing and when the sun isn't up, then it, it we can't ever um, really make big changes. In. And the other thing is, for example, when you do have backup solar uh, or solar and you do have storage locally, uh, if you are part of a grid and when there is a power outage, um, you stay up. You, you still have your power, so you don't have to lose all that food in your refrigerator and, and uh, all the consequences that I've I've, I've experienced, people in my community have experienced, it's quite expensive to recover from a multi-day or um, power outage. I want to talk, I want to get this in before we uh, close. we we got uh, seven, eight minutes left, but um, uh, I was watching a video where you were talking about things we can do individually, starting with installing yep. energy-efficient light bulbs. I wonder if you could uh, take sure. off a few of those things. Um, one thing that's interesting is that you can save a lot of money if you replace an incandescent light bulb. Say uh, a, a typical family home um, with a, an incandescent light bulb, if you replaced all those light bulbs with LEDs, literally you could have some of the, the folks living in the home forget to turn off the lights and you literally don't have to worry. <laughs> I mean, you do, but compared to before, you would be better off. But we do worry, so it's better to have those sensors in there that turn off the lights when you leave the room and you don't even have to think about it. Um, and, and so LEDs really save you money, and they, over the course of uh, electricity, that they more than pay for themselves then if you are waiting for that incandescent light bulb to burn out, it's worse. It's better to replace it fast and you start saving money right away. Um, because of your electricity bill. So that makes economic sense. Another thing that is really reasonable, even if you rent, um, is to do most of your clothing washed in cold weather, a cold setting, because if you use the hot temperature setting, you're using five times the energy. So most detergents are designed to clean your clothes under cold uh, settings. So you don't, unless there's a, you know, someone's sick in the house and you want to make sure everything is, is really sterilized, then you can do that. But it's in general, um, water is the biggest, and, and with soap, those are doing most of the work. And the temperature is really just uh, a bonus. Uh, another couple things you talked about here, uh, watch your tire pressure, get the junk out of the trunk in your car so you're not carrying out as much uh, heat and combined errands. Simple things. Right, yeah. And the other thing is... Um, Combine your errands and figure out, make your plan. And the other thing is that really, if you, if you just 
check your tire pressure and you don't have that rolling friction when you have one tire that's a little bit lower, you'd be surprised. You don't want to spend a lot of money on gas anyway, so you save money. Uh, the other thing is don't worry about in the summertime. You can roll down the windows or use the air conditioning. Neither they are about equivalent. So you don't want to sweat the small stuff. Do whichever you prefer, the air conditioner or roll down the windows. Neither of those, they're about equivalent. So uh, you can enjoy that and not worry about it. And the other thing is that um, what people do, too, is they'll buy a vehicle that might be something they want to use on vacation once a year. Um, buy the vehicle for your family or yourself that is your daily practice. And if you want to do a special type of vacation or use a special uh, purpose or, or move something with a truck that, it, that you only do two or five times a year, just rent that, ve- that size vehicle, and you don't need to run around in it all year long. You've talked about uh, insulating your home. Uh, most homes, you say, have 15% leakage, or a lot of homes do? Yeah, it's almost like having your window open. Um, all year round. That's the typical leakage in a home. So you can have a free energy audit from the utility company, and they can do all sorts of fun tricks to uh, figure out where the leakage is, and then you could repair that through caulking, insulation, other things. You know those infrared uh, goggles? You can stand outside your home and take a look at night and see what's going on. You can start seeing where the leakage is. And energy-efficient windows, um, if you ever get the chance to replace one, I have them in my home, and I could put my hand in the winter on the energy-efficient window, and I could put it next to the wall. That's the wall to the outside. The wall to the outside is colder than that window. It's unbelievable what technology is creating these days. I want to get this uh, email in, um, uh, actually a call. Uh, Jennifer and Vernal called, and uh, and so my producer has transcribed this, uh, so I hope I get this uh, right, Jennifer. Uh, she says, uh, uh, quote, Trump is a crook, and we're going to say bad things about him, end quote. Uh, she said, Ayn Rand was, uh, quote, one of the most selfish people, end quote, and why would anyone want to be like her? And uh, she said she spent two weeks in the hospital recently after a run-in with some Trump supporters with guns. Uh, that sounds uh, serious. Uh, she says she mostly wanted to say that, uh, I'll, I'll, uh, change this slightly, Jennifer. She disagreed with the guy who recommended Dan Grand, and uh, that we have the right to criticize uh, the president. So uh, Jennifer is uh, disagreeing on a couple of points with uh, with Don. That's what this forum is uh, is all about. As long as we disagree in a reasonably agreeable uh, fashion, so it's good to have uh, full spectrum represented in our listenership. I'm, I appreciate that. I really do. Um, so uh, let's uh, move, uh, unless you want to weigh in here <laughs> on, on that particular point, Dr. Ekwerzo. Um, just, I, I have enjoyed reading many different books from many different perspectives over my life, and uh, it helps inform my, my thinking today, and, and we all have that opportunity. Uh, by the way, Don, I'll just uh, add this parenthetically, and I guess now that I say it, I, we better do this. Uh, for quite a while, I've envisioned an episode of this program where I would uh, bring someone on who's an adherent of Ayn Rand and uh, have uh, have them uh, explain Ayn Rand to me, um, you know, a proponent of Ayn Rand. <laughs> and so I, I think I'll I think I'll look for someone to uh, Don. You could uh, you could uh, email us back in or call back in and and maybe recommend somebody to to perform perform that because Ayn Rand is very influential with many people and uh, I think uh, be good to 
to explore that. Anyway, that's parenthetical. We now have just about a, a, a couple of minutes left. Uh, so, so now down to the takeaway, Dr. Caruso. What would you, what would you like people to take away from this discussion, and especially for, I guess, individual changes we can make? Sure. I guess kind of to that point of, you know, I was reading an old book a long time ago that people told me to read because they said it was important, and I've read other books since, and a lot of them have to do with climate change and a lot of it, the engineering. And I realized that the way we used to think and the way we used to perceive threats at the time, a lot of them we avoided because we identified a problem and we, we met it and addressed it. And I would love... For years later, people said, oh, it was just a hoax. It didn't, wasn't as bad as we thought it would be because we identified, we told where the problem was, and we all did our part uh, to help avoid it. And we, don't, we have just a world that's a little bit warmer than today, um, and, and some of the consequences we'll have to adapt to, but we manage it. It's a manageable uh, situation rather than what I know is out there, which is far it's hard for people to imagine the changes we see as scientists, the risks that are out there. They are really real, and, and I hope we avoid them, and people still are skeptical that it was ever such a big risk. But believe me, it is out there, and we can avoid it. We better avoid it, it at least according to what I, I think. would. It's all for ourselves and, and helping many people around the world um, be able to avoid lots of harm going forward. Well, Dr. Brenda Gorzel has been our uh, guest. She's with the Union of Concerned Scientists. She'll be in Utah uh, later this week. Uh, free presentation uh, at the Testman Auditorium in the downtown Salt Lake City Library on Thursday, beginning at 3.15. And a couple of uh, presentations uh, at the Intermountain Sustainability Summit at Weaver State University in Ogden, uh, 8.30 in the morning on Thursday, and then that's a plenary session, then 8.30 in the morning on Friday, a workshop. Dr. Caruso, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk with you today. Appreciate it. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard and streaming online at upr.org. <laughs>